0: hello and welcome to life of the school episode 36. hello my name is aaron matthew and i'm a biology teacher at acton boxborough regional high school in acton massachusetts Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how did they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are they hoping to do in the future. This episode, I sit down with Jen Fannerstil. Jen is the scientist in residence and science department faculty member at the North Shore Country Day School in Winnetka, Illinois. She has been teaching a range of life science courses, including AP Biology, at the high school level since 1996. Jen advises students in an advanced open research course, a capstone course focusing on authentic faculty mentored research in the sciences. As the scientist in residence, she works to promote an appreciation and understanding of science at a cross curricular level among students from pre K to 12 and within the greater North Shore community. Jen is currently the co-chair of the AP Biology Development Committee. She has given numerous presentations at national conferences on how to incorporate quantitative inquiry-based instruction and assessment in the redesigned AP Biology curriculum. She serves as the high school science director of the Illinois Science Teachers Association and on the introductory biology task force of the National Association of Biology Teachers. She has served as an AP Biology Reader, Table Leader, Assistant to the Chief Reader, and the Exam Leader. For her efforts in both the classroom and the biology community, she was awarded the NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher Award and the Illinois Science Teacher Association ExxonMobil Outstanding Teacher of Science Award in 2014. Welcome, Jen.
1: Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. That's uh, I've now broken my short intro streak with you. Um, <laughs> 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 I had I had I've been working on paring them down, but I was you know as we were talking before coming on, I was like I don't know I don't want to cut any of this stuff out because like I know that if I cut out the science and scientist in residence thing, I'd be like somebody would be like well what the heck is a scientist yeah. in residence? um So uh
1: <laughs> that's okay. I I wonder daily what a scientist in residence <laughs> is. So. Uh... I'm glad we could share that with everyone.
0: (laughs) Just a reminder. So so it was great. Yeah, we were, this has been the, this is the podcast that was so hard to schedule, but I'm I'm really happy we finally got to sit down. Um, I actually was thinking about it earlier today that this conversation was trying to start a conversation with you at NABT and scheduling this podcast was the same thing. Um, (laughs) like I I saw you at NABT, but it was like, clearly you were way too busy. And so I could see you for a minute. And then I saw you a little bit later. And then finally we got to sit down and talk. It it took a couple of passes before we got a chance to sit down and have a conversation. Um, but,
1: uh, Mm -hmm. well, that's just a sign that we're both busy doing things that we love.
0: Yeah. That's a good. Yeah. And I will say for me, and, you know, we've been back for a couple of weeks now, that conversation we had where we were talking about the, um, about statistics, um, after Brad Williamson's talk. Um, and we were talking about the stats. Um, it's just like one of those little nuggets from the NABT that I keep turning over in my head over and over again. Um, you know, either when I'm talking about stuff, you know, in the classroom or um, when I'm thinking about planning and stuff like that, that little conversation is going to be one of those little, you know, one of those little things that sticks for me, I think for quite some time. So it was, uh,
1: I've had, um, I've had lots of those little nuggets with, with Brad, uh, and I think one of the greatest things about him is that he makes me walk away feeling like a teacher and a student. And so that was for sure one of those nuggets that I left NABT with as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. He was great. Um yeah, and the whole the whole conference was great. So um it's uh, amazing that it was so short. It was, it was amazing that it was just a couple of days. Um all in I know, all... it
1: it feels like you it feels like we fit so much in those few days, but then those days are just gone like <laughs> Nothing and um, it, it seems like once a year isn't enough for that sort of um, that sort of conference. So
0: yeah All right, well um, Before we we could get totally sidetracked on all the great conversations at NBT, But I want to I want to get into the first question i like to ever ask everybody which is um, how did you become a science teacher? Uh, what led you mm-hmm. into the classroom? yeah
1: um, so uh, teaching is sort of one of those things that's in my family. Uh, My dad was a teacher, uh, two of my sisters are teachers. My grandpa was a teacher and many of his brothers and sisters were teachers. And so I decided I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, (laughs) it was something that I was not going to be, uh, I was going to put the word just in front of that and say, I'm not just going to be a teacher. And it was kind of something I felt like, um, Maybe I was destined to be, and for that reason, I wanted to be the rebel and not be it. (laughs) And so I decided that I would be pre-med or pre-pharmacy or pre-physical therapy or athletic training or something in the health professions is definitely where I wanted to go. Um, But I also loved music, and so I went to Lawrence University for my undergrad and loved the ability to be over at the conservatory. Uh, I played Division III sports and no one really told me that you couldn't enjoy music, be a division 3 athlete and also uh, be pre-med at the same <laughs> time. Like that just was uh, not going to de- uh, you know, I like my plate full, but that was significantly too full. And so um I think that that was part of what swayed me away from the health professions. I also think that Um, There was a realization that while I enjoyed biology and I liked thinking like a scientist and I liked solving problems, um, I really also did like teaching kids. And so I certainly don't think that there's a teacher gene, but I know that I grew up in a family where education was really valued. And so at some point I had to put my uh, belligerent rebel self to the side and be able to say to myself, no, I think I just really do want to be a teacher Um, and that, and that, that wasn't settling, that wasn't something that I needed to look as a fallback on. I didn't need to be disappointed. I wasn't going to be a doctor, really something that I needed to embrace. And so teaching is definitely my family. It was something that I came full circle with, um, and something that I'm really glad that I figured out was, you know, who I was supposed to be.
0: Yeah. That medical professional shift to gear is a, is a common theme I, I hear from a lot of people, um, when you make that shift, you're, you're in college. I started teaching in 96 as well. So I'm a little bit curious how that, um, I kind of, I feel like I sort of backed into teaching. Like like suddenly I was a, a teacher. It was something that I decided I was going to do. And back then it was kind of easy. Like I just sort of flipped the switch and, you know, went and got my master's in education and went right into it. Uh, was it that easy of a shift for you to make the shift over and uh, decide to pursue teaching?
1: Yeah, it was a pretty easy shift because I, I, had, I still wanted to stay in the biological sciences. And so a lot of those courses transferred. And at that time, um, you were just doing a lot of your practical teaching towards the end of your teaching career. And so I think that's different than it is now. Pre-service teachers are definitely in the classroom significantly more early on in their, um, in their college careers. And I think that's great. Um, but I hadn't missed out on any of that. And I was able to pick up um, a lot of the theoretical pedagogical sorts of courses, uh, after I had completed my biology degree and then, um, just did my student teaching at the end. And so it seemed like a pretty easy thing. I don't know retrospect. I don't know if it was the best. I think that if I would have had some of those practicum experiences early on in my career, I think, um, some of those aha moments I had in the first five years of my teaching career might've been really, really different. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't know that it was necessarily better or worse. I think that I was destined to be a teacher, so I kind of had that, um, you know, forever learner sort of mentality going into teaching, and um, and that made those first five years pretty form pretty formative.
0: Yeah, I that that playing that guessing game of oh well, if I had done it this way, or that, it's it's almost impossible because um, in some ways, I think the ignorance I had personally about things um, led me into a lot of the aha moments. Um, I didn't know how certain things were supposed to happen, Um, so a little bit of a stumble.
1: Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, I can recall some, some times early on teaching when I pushed myself kind of to a cliff, and I thought, oh, I could try something new and jump off the cliff. And then I thought, oh, I'm only in my first few years of teaching. Do I really want to do that, or do I want to be safe? And I kind of pulled back. And now in year 22, I sit here and go, oh, I, I would have jumped off that cliff a little bit sooner on some of those things. So, I don't know if if I had I known I was early on, if that would have changed, or um, if I would have jumped off a cliff sooner. All I know is I'm glad I jumped.
0: <laughs> so one of the things you mentioned really quickly was that idea of by, like being a learner, and and to me that that is really exemplified by, you know, when we were at the conference and the conversations people are, people are having. But um, I also know you're heavily involved with uh, the AP development and redesign. And so I'm curious sort of the pathway from you as early teacher moving into mid-career and and how you got involved with the AP development and redesign.
1: Yeah, um, so uh, my second year uh, as a teacher Um, Another teacher and I decided we were going to start the first two AP courses at our high school. We decided that this small rural school in Wisconsin was in need of some rigorous coursework and that AP was, you know, one of the vehicles that we could take to get there. And so we proposed uh, our AP courses. Um, I wanted it so badly that I ended up teaching the AP course during my prep period Um, and didn't Didn't take any extra pay to do that. The irony of that is that my dad was a long-time negotiator for a teacher's union, and I, after this, became a lead negotiator and a president of our teacher's union, mostly because the current president of the um, teacher's union and the head negotiator came into my classroom and said, what are you doing? You can't just go and teach a class for free let alone AP? And I said, well, yes, I can. I want to. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was kind of um, my foray into the world of AP, but also a foray that I didn't expect into um, being a teacher leader in terms of, of a labor organization. Um, so needless to say, the second year, uh, I didn't volunteer to teach AP. They put it into my into my schedule And um, my kids didn't do really well, and it was a really hard course, and I felt like the whole time I was catching up, and I felt like I knew a whole lot of content, but I didn't know how to disseminate that quantity of content to my kids, and I thought, well, you know, clearly there are kids out there that are getting fours and fives, what do I need to do? And that's when I learned that I could be an AP reader. And um, I really had never flown on a plane by myself. Um, we grew up as a, a pretty um, low income family. My dad was a teacher. My mom was lucky enough to be able to stay home with me and my three sisters. And so uh, we didn't travel much. And so when I got the okay to be an AP reader, I can remember going to the airport thinking, oh my gosh, I'm flying by myself. Um, and that was, something totally crazy, but it was totally out of my, my box. Um, I mean, to fly to Clemson university, which was the first place that I went to a reading, um, all on my own and to have my flight delayed three times and get into Clemson at, I think midnight or 1230 in the morning. Um, it was a travel day from hell. But, um, when I got down there, I ended up meeting one of my best friends, Paula Phillips. She was my roommate. She was waiting for me there. She had a dinner for me. And we got to be best friends. And the next day, I kind of realized what AP was really all about. Because in those days, there were so few readers that you got to help develop the rubric. So, as a you know third year teacher, I think it was, I was there at the AP reading, uh, helping develop rubrics for you know however many exams there were at that time. And I looked around and realized that I was sitting around college professors and I was sitting around teachers who had been teaching this course for a really long time and test developers who really knew their stuff. Beth Nichols was one of the first test developers I met and she is a longtime friend and still a mentor to me. Um, And at that point I knew that AP was something that I was all in. Um, With that being said, I also became one of the first uh, outspoken um, people to say this course is too big. Um, mm-hmm. There's something going on here. We're, we're doing something wrong if we're trying to, you know, shove all this content down kids' throats but not teach them how to do science. And, you know, that was the same time that the NRC was coming out saying that inquiry was what science education was all about and Dartmouth was coming out saying we don't know if we're going to accept AP credit. And so the whole thing ballooned into this redesign. And throughout the redesign, uh, even at the AP reading, teachers were really critical of a lot of things that were happening to AP and a lot of the changes. And I think that that's a really good thing. I think that the academic discourse that we had as a community throughout the time of the redesign is really what made the redesign what it was. Um, And it made this course what it is now and something that so many people can be really, really proud of. And so I'm pretty sure that being a, a loud, critic of it is, you know, how I got more involved in it. Because when people are critical, they figure, you know, put them on your side, and then they won't be as critical. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that that was part of it. Um, And that is a way that my name sort of got recognized. But I also know that um, a man by the name of John LaPree from uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro, he and I had some interactions early on in my career at the AP reading. And Um, The next thing I knew, there was a phone call saying, um, hey, small town girl from Wisconsin, you want to be the assistant to the chief reader. And I said, what exactly does that mean? And he said, I have no idea, but if I'm going to do it, I want to do it with somebody who is as passionate about AP as you. And um, I really have a lot of respect for him. He's probably one of the people in this world who has helped me really to become the biology educator that I am, and I would do anything to help him. And so I said, yes. And we went to Louisville, Kentucky and uh, it was a nightmare. The <laughs> light was bad and things went wrong with the Scantron sheets and you name it, it happened. We brought in floor lamps so people could see um, and we were only in Louisville one year. Uh, and then then we moved to uh, Kansas City or maybe it was back to Nebraska, I can't remember. Um, but we went to Kansas City and um, the rest is sort of history in terms of the AP reading and so um, I jumped out of the box and some people, I guess, recognized that um, I wasn't afraid to speak my mind, um, but also hopefully you know that there was some expertise behind those words and then that helped me climb the, the reading ladder. And from that point, people like Beth Nichols and Mitch Price and um, Israel Salon uh, recognized that I could write AP questions that I was, you know, diligent about trying to write questions that fuse that content with skill, and um, eventually landed myself a position on the AP to, AP Biology Development Committee, and um, you know, that's kind of where it's sit now.
0: Wow! So uh, volunteering. This is a <laughs> volunteering, yeah. and and then being being, uh, you know, thoughtfully critical. That's the uh, right. That's your path. So it's, it's very fascinating for me to listen to this. So, you know, my my path was to get to the AP was sort of a very different sort of way that I, I teach at a big school and AP was established. And it's, um, you know, sort of passed, you know, the AP courses are passed on as like the one lion retires. You know, they turn and they bequeath the AP curriculum on to somebody else mm-hmm. who's there um and i you know not to denigrate any of the people who teach ap in my building because i think they are all outstanding teachers but at the time that that occurred um it was another one of my colleagues who's the one who took the mantle on of being the ap biology teacher um excellent teacher excellent educator and then he ran on it for a few years and so i found my niche someplace else um teaching in the building and then as he built his curriculum up, he got to the point where he was teaching four, he was going to have four sections of AP in the building and it was just too much. And he's like, no, I need, I need somebody else in here. And that was the year before the redesign um, test came in. So I taught one year in the old system. So I know what you're talking about the volume of content. Um, Cause I felt like all we did was try to disseminate content in that old curriculum. Um, yeah and go through that redesign. And, um, I was very fortunate. I had Joan Carlson, uh, for the summer Institute I had, and I know that she's been involved. She had been involved with the reach. So, um, yeah,
1: one of the the most wicked smart women I know.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that it's one of those things where I had a little bit of a sense at the time that when I went to my summer training that she was there, it was a little small one in central Massachusetts. There weren't many of us in the room was like a dozen of us or so. So like, what you know, we're at, fitchburg state and it's some this local you know teacher from (laughs) from bancroft is there what do i know Uh, but i had a little inkling that she had a little bit more with it than that and she was just getting ready to retire like she was you know final year but she was telling us about the redesign so she i got the training of it of both what the ap was but what ap was going to be and so she previewed some of the labs yeah. that are in the redesign. And so like, it was very much one of those pieces. So I, I was very fortunate in my summer training. Um, and so basically I had a year before that where I was learning the old system uh, with my now colleague who I co- who's the other AP teacher. And I had really no idea about the, that there was any redesign coming or anything like that. All I knew is that there was this like this wall of content I had to get ready to teach. And then I went right. to this summer thing and learned about, you know, the the AP. But I got this inkling that there was a change. And mm-hmm. and it was so wonderful <laughs> to teach that change, just, you know, to get into it. Because I had been, you know, it was just getting through that first year. But I also felt like, yeah, this isn't science. I'm like just teaching, I'm teaching right. the history of science. I'm just teaching all this content. Um, right. And- yeah.
1: And, I, and I, I think all of us who have taught. AP in the legacy days felt that. I think that, I mean, I was teaching my general biology course way differently than I was teaching Mm. AP. And at some point you sat back and you said, wait, if I think that this is best practice in my general class, then why am I having to have this teacher centered classroom in AP? Because there's just this bulk of content. And at some point, all of us sat back and said, and I agree, it was a it was a welcome change to this doing science mantra that now we're able to, you know, truly do an AP.
0: Yeah. And I worked with a, an AP chem teacher who's since retired. And she, she used to talk about how AP drives curriculum and, and, you know, how AP can be an Avenue and just sort of like how you said, starting that AP course for the rigor in your school and how AP can be this vehicle that can help, you know, cast a lens onto, you know, you know, Changing the way you teach, and I'll be honest, the first year I taught that that AP course, I didn't I didn't see that, I didn't understand how this like wall of content was going to help. I mean, I teach in a school with high achievers and that sort of thing. Um, I didn't really see how it how it transfix. But now that I teach with this system of inquiry, with these labs where we do a baseline lab and then a follow up lab, and we talk about the concept of data and we do all that, I like now absolutely now this is informing all of the biology teaching that happens in our school um, and makes me ask different questions about things that I'm doing at other levels that even aren't AP, but like what's good science and what's good science teaching.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So very, uh, very happy with that. All right. So this leads me into my new question. And I, um, I actually did have a conversation uh, with Uh, My principal uh, yesterday, actually, yesterday afternoon, I went in and we sat down, had a little informal conversation. I was like, so uh, how would you feel if I uh, left school um, in June? Because we still will be in school and I I go out and be an AP reader. Um, And it does mean I would leave my school for a week. Um, and, uh, I'd already had the conversation with my family and my family was fine with it. <laughs> and I talked to my department head and then he said, I'm fine with it. Just make sure you get, uh, okay from, uh, from our principal. So I went and talked to him and, and so now here's my question. What the heck am I signing up for if I apply and get accepted to, to be an AP reader for the first time?
1: Oh, you're getting signed up for summer camp for geeks. That's <laughs> what it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> the AP reading is one of those things that um, I could use the cliche that I've heard millions of times that says it's the best professional development that there is. Um, Part of me think that thinks that that's become cliche, but the other part of me realized it's just permeated our community so much. I think that, I think that there's the, the two biggest overarching pieces that you get from becoming an AP reader are this one you learn about the conceptions and misconceptions from 240,000 kids. And that's way different than the conceptions and misconceptions you learn about your class of 30. And so to be able to not only see those in written form from students, but then to be able to talk about them um, mm-hmm. with other teachers is, is absolute gold. Um, to be able to see that is, is just incredible. Those conversations with teachers though, that's another piece because about one of those misconceptions it's inevitable that we as practitioners are going to say well how do we address this in our classroom what do you do how do you teach this what activity do you do with students how do you introduce it you know how do you create relevance and all of those questions then lead to some of the best pd that i've ever seen and most of it is you know maybe at the flying saucer or um, or you know in power and light district and all of those public venues are places where you just, you know, very authentically congregate with people who are either like-minded or maybe not like-minded. And you have some really great discussions about what your classrooms look like. And so that piece of, of how you transform as a teacher is like none other. You'll just, you'll just never teach kids the same way. um, Once you've been to a reading. The second thing I love about the reading is that we are in service to each other. And so I come there, you come there, you know, this year 710 readers are going to come to Kansas City to grade each other's tests, to grade each other's students' tests like they're our own. And to me, that's something that we owe to AP. And so if people can be a reader for a year, if people can be a reader for 25 years, um, if people can maybe in the future do distributed scoring and be able to grade some from home because it's not conducive for them to be able to, um, um leave leave however you can give back to this community I think it's just something we owe it and so those are the two overarching takeaways that I think that the reading provides yeah what are you you know what are you signing up for logistically yeah <laughs> um a really uncomfortable chair and it's really cold in there and um we sit at tables for eight hours a day uh, we feed you a lot we um put you in a position where you're kind of thinking what did I want to do and I never want to come back here and then everybody wants to come back right about now is the time that we're all getting emails saying hey I couldn't come last year but I really want to come this year Um, everybody wants to come back and be a reader Um, and so it's it's uncomfortable it's hard it's challenging but it's also one of the most rewarding things I do every year
0: yeah, I um, because last year, last year was a year where I couldn't have. Go, I I didn't feel like I really could go. I couldn't get away from school. And as I say, it's a it's a delicate balance for those of us in the Northeast. And we were talking about our calendar earlier. Um, you know, I I will literally be leaving the last week of classes and missing the beginning of finals. Now it's not the end of the world um, for my kids. You know, it's my AP classes are obviously done. My alternative program kids, they've already taken the state exam. So, like, realistically, it's logistically doable. Last year would have been a little bit harder um, to, just because we got out a little bit later. Um, but I think it's doable this year. But I did get, uh, like, texts from Ryan Reardon last year. He's like, why are you not here? Um, <laughs> and There was probably more colorful language mixed in because it was Ryan. But, um <laughs>
1: Of course, you got a text from Ryan wondering why you weren't there. Yeah, of course. I was
0: like, I've never done this before. Like, first of all, Ryan and I didn't know each other like six months before <laughs> uh, that that conversation. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like he like I don't know, he sort of expected after we had had a conversation that like I was just gonna be there, like I belonged there, um, which is which is funny. Like uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's I, to me, I with as somebody who hasn't gone, I I do kind of feel like it's probably gonna feel a little bit like NABT in the sense that. Um, like I went Mm -hmm. to NABT and and NABT, particularly the first couple of years is like kind of overwhelming. Like it's so much, um, and everybody's so good. And like, you feel like a little bit, I don't know, not worthy, like, oh my God, what's going on here. And it's a little overwhelming from that. But then you'll also look around and you're like, oh, but these are all my people. Um, I,
1: I think too, I mean, you'll have a a different, um, vantage point than I did going in not anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But you will definitely go in knowing people. I think the other thing that's really great about the read is that the chief reader does such a good job of putting people in positions where they're going to find success. And so, um, you know, putting people in the reading as table leaders who are people that not only know their biological stuff, um, but are also really great teachers and can build rapport with the eight people that are around them and make everybody feel like they're contributing, and offer super instructive criticism. I maintain that table leaders are the cog. I mean, they're the ones that make the the reading go round. And so, um, you know, she puts them in a great position. I think that she has people in leadership positions that are are strong-willed, and willing to and willing to you know, push for the sake of 240,000 kids, and 13,000 teachers. And in the end, we developed rubrics that are really good. And so um, just to go and see how that machine works and to be able to come home and say to your kids, listen, that exam that you wrote is going to be graded by a professional, and it's going to be graded the same on day one as it was on day seven. And you got a fair grade because I know these people and I saw how this machine works. I think for them to trust in this system when you're sending their test off to be graded by, you know, who knows who, um, that's something that you can't do until you're a reader. And so it's, it's worth it. It's worth missing that last week with your kids to be able to come home and then tell your next year's kids something that's going to change who they are as students.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm definitely excited a little bit, (laughs) a little little apprehensive, but excited. Um, uh, definitely fits into that. Um, I don't know. You you said, you said the the learner piece again. You know, like earlier on, and and that's the, I think that's the 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 thing that sort of keeps coming back. You know, um, that's the thing that I enjoy the most is just like learning stuff, um, <laughs> just in general. Like it doesn't matter what we what I'm doing. I find things fascinating, and this is why I spend, you know, when I fall down a rabbit hole, it's because I'm learning something. Um, you know, like I wasted some time, but it's because I was curious about a question or curious that. And so to be in a room with smart people who are working hard, there's a lot to be learned in that room. Um,
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I, it doesn't hit eight o'clock in the morning at the reading when I haven't learned something new. And so you walk away with a notebook filled of nuggets. Um, And that to me is a, a really well spent week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've got all this experience, um, and you know, you're have quite a few years left ahead of you in your classroom because you know, (laughs) we're mid career. What are you looking forward to in the next couple of years in in your classroom?
1: Um, so I, what I love now is that trying to at 44 jump off another cliff. And I just talked with my kids today about, um, not having a textbook and I, Put that cat on the roof at NEBT. Um, I'm to the point right now where I think a textbook's gonna go away. I don't need a textbook-centered classroom, and I'm to the point that I have four units, and they're all framed around one really cool question. And you know, my textbook, if you know if it exists, is ripped up into sections, and all these sections are together. and for the last five years or so, I've been tweaking things and making it a little bit more crazy each year. And what I'm really looking forward to is the fact that next year is not going to be like this year and the following year is not going to And it, it really, I can look at five or 10 years down the road and honestly not be able to say I'm going to be covering photosynthesis on you know January 15th. And um, I love that about my job. I think that at this point, if if I were there, I would definitely have to find something else because I've I've reached kind of I've kind of reached that threshold where I really need new challenge all the time. And so right now um, AP is providing that challenge for me because of how I'm structuring it, but more so right now it's that scientist in residence piece that you alluded to at the beginning. When I decided to switch jobs, I wanted to look for something that had something beyond being a classroom teacher. And that scientist in residence piece, while I joked that I don't really know what it means every day, I love that I don't know what it means every day. And some days it's building a giant shark in our atrium and, you know, during our interim. And some days it's helping seventh grade kids who are making eco columns. And some days it's going down and watching first graders blow a bubble and so I have this pre-k-12 kind of classroom where I can help make kids scientifically literate is something right now in my career that 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 challenge so in terms of what I can do within the walls at North Shore um it's it's those pieces
0: so it sounds like you have um, it's it's just beyond a like science curriculum director. It's like you are an active science like resource uh, for your school um, to help broaden the science experience across the board. Is that is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. I mean, we have a really strong science department at North Shore. Um, they've done a really great job of hiring. I think uh, a lot of the best educators in the country and. Um, we all push each other. And I love that about us. Um, We're challenged by creating interdisciplines. We're challenged by creating these JK through 12 sort of units where we're putting older kids and younger kids together. We're challenged by, you know, creating this maker mindset and having it break through the walls of the science center. And so Um, it's a pretty surprising time there. Um, we just raised a lot of money, um, for this maker mindset sort of idea. And so we have some tangible pieces of equipment that are coming in. Um, but also, uh, support by our administration to engage in some PD that hopefully is going to be pretty transformative. And so, um, I think we're right on the brink of something really cool. I think we have some people in place that challenge themselves, even though they're mid-career and, and make this happen. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love where I'm at. And so in terms of that teaching piece, that's pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, I, I get excited when I hear about the concept of interdisciplinary. It's um, not something that is really 100% table on the table where I am right now, uh, just because of some of the structures and some of the history and that sort of thing. Um, it's one of those, you know... <laughs> when you ask, oh, you know, in 10 years, will we be doing this? And everyone's like, oh yeah, I hope down the road we can create this space. But I've heard several times, you know, several iterations. Wouldn't it be great if we can open up this space and doesn't feel like that's there, but we're on the verge of some changes at my school that maybe it will open up some of that, some of that space. So, um, that is, it's an exciting place to be where you can say, I am not going to be teaching in a school that's anything like the school I went to. Um, to me, that's exciting. Yes, um, sure. Because it's 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 not the nineteen eighties and nineties anymore, so it shouldn't look like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, I I think that that's what we owe to our kids, though. I mean, we we're creating different science learners, right? I mean, they can they can Google anything on you know questions that we will, that we would have to know or we would have to have. Looked up, or we would have had to figure out somewhere, and and they just have it at their fingertips, and that mandates that we teach science really differently, hmm. and that, and that's the other piece that is who I am right now. I think that this this intro bio task force that's been formulated by uh, NABT is, one of the reasons I want to stay in education. I think that we're on to something in the sense that. Um, inquiry is hard and we've known about inquiry for a really long time. And yet we're still kind of, you know, teaching science a lot in the same ways. And so what are we doing as science teachers to create kids who are going off into the workplace and often to, um, citizenry and, and really making a difference and being able to think like scientists. And that's way more than delivering content. And so walls at North shore, whether I'm doing it as, you know, an advocate on the intra test. For whether I'm doing it when I'm creating test questions for AP, I think that's always right at the front of what I'm thinking about is, you know, is this question worth asking kids in the 21st century? Is this question um, something that I need my kids to be able to do? And that's whether I'm at school, whether I'm in, the, you know, test development, whether hmm. I'm in a committee room, whether wherever I am. And, and I think that so many of us are like that now. It, it feels... Like there's momentum. I mean, Brad and I have talked about how this is a watershed moment that the pendulum has swung, and we got to grab what we're you know, where we're at right now, or we're going to lose it. And so, um, just trying to keep that pendulum where it's at, I think, is important.
0: Yeah, and that's the 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 other sort of like-minded thing that you you talk about when you go to places like NABT and and I assume that it's at the read, although I'm imagining with the the number of voices, it's going to be a a broader swath. I find sometimes, you know, you will hear frustration about the fact that we're changing the system that we're in um, and not excitement. <laughs> and I like being around the, the NABT because to me, like, you know, it could be something that frustrates you or it could be an opportunity. Um, and there definitely is a, a mindset that you can bring into that. Um, I very much am nodding along with what you're saying. There's, this is a great opportunity time to make these changes.
1: Yeah. absolutely and it's all it's all about clinching opportunity i mean a lot of my background is sports and being a coach and so i know that there're certain times within a game when there has to be a push and i yell the same thing to my volleyball athletes all the time i'm like right now right now is the push we got to get to 20 and i feel like that in science education i feel like right now is a push time and um you know it's not a time to take a time out it's not a time <laughs> to stall it's really it's really a time to push and um I feel like there's a lot of people in really great positions in, um, you know, societies and within organizations across the country in biology education, and I think that all of those people have the same
0: push. So um, I'm looking forward to what the next ten years brings for sure. Great. So um, before we get into sort of the picks wrap up, um, what do you what do you do when you're not teaching? Uh, I know you mentioned volleyball, and I uh, that's definitely in there, but What do you, what is, what is your life like when you're not in the classroom?
1: Oh, well, I have, um, I have three wonderful daughters, uh, ages seven, 11 and, um, 15. Mm -hmm. And they keep me pretty busy. Um, definitely a huge chunk of, of who I am. Um, volleyball takes up a lot of time and that's a great thing. It certainly is a passion of mine. I was a player. Um, I started coaching career and I think what I like not only the competitive athletic piece, which I, I really like having that in my life, but I like developing relationships with kids outside of school. I think that mm-hmm. the, the relationships that we develop with, especially girls, uh, when we coach them in sports is, uh, crucial. And I think that we kid out there on the floor in a position to find success or failure in front of hundreds to thousands of spectators. And so I better make sure that I've prepared them to have success or to at least be able to embrace that failure. And that's a really different thing than sometimes we do in the classroom. It's a really safe environment. Um, I think that Sports is a way that we can really develop some strong young women. And so I don't mind that it takes a lot of my time. I mean, part of the reason we had such a hard time scheduling <laughs> this this talk is because I was scheduling around you know, several volleyball teams. Um, and so I really enjoy doing that. And then um, I love water sports. And so being able to be on the water each day skiing summers in northern Wisconsin at a cabin uh, in Wisconsin, um, watching my girls ski um, whether it's taking a kayak out into the middle of the lake and maybe reading a paper that's biology or maybe reading a book, uh, whatever I decide to take for the day. Um, we're on the water every single day. Um, we're taking walks, we're biking, we're doing something. So that time in the summer is pretty priceless to me.
0: Yeah. And it's it's a time you don't get back. So, uh, I was as you were describing that, I was thinking yep. about kayaking with uh, with my boys because I have 10 and fourteen, so uh, not too different than uh, I'll have eleven and I'll have 11 and fifteen this summer.
1: Um. <laughs> yeah, it's about the same. that keeps us busy, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, and um, I was thinking back because I spend a fair amount of I'll be this Saturday I'll be um, at uh, spring soccer tryouts for our town soccer because um, my ten year old will be playing spring soccer and I'll be doing evaluations uh for our u12s um which is kind of funny at this point because as you were talking about the relationships like i know like the 10 and 11 year old boys in town um i've been coaching them since they were five like (laughs) Mm -hmm. they know me i know them like i like we really you know we're gonna have the tryout because you don't know every kid but realistically there's like like large numbers of these kids and um who, who just, you've, I've just spent like my spring and fall with this group of boys for so many years, you know, my son's friends. Um, but as you were talking, I was thinking back cause I used to coach high school girls soccer and, um, it, there is a special degree of teamwork and community and like having each other's back and, and stuff like that, which yeah, yeah. You, you get some of that in the classroom, but it's, it's just not the same. Um, it's just not the same, and it's different with girls' teams than boys' teams. Um, there is definitely this sense of um, it feels different. It's I don't I don't want to give a like a gender difference, but I'll just say that the community you get coaching a girls' team is so much different than the community you get from coaching a boys' team. Um, yeah, I agree. So
1: absolutely uh, agree. It's, I just a friend sent me an article the other day, and um, it said, I "Wondered if it's worth it coaching because." Um, you know, there's a there's a jab that goes sometimes along with coaching girls that they're really melodramatic and that there's this social piece and that you know girls teams are really hard. So reaction to that email was to send it back to them and say, thanks for sharing. I never question whether or not you know it's worth it to coach girls. Um, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty cool thing. I've had the privilege to coach some kids at some pretty high levels and when I was at my former school we. Made it to the state tournament at times, and um, this past week, my former athlete's sitting in a room when they were announcing the NCAA Division One um, number one seeds in the tournament, and she is sitting on the room on one of those teams. Wow. And I look back on those days when I coached her when she was eleven and twelve and thirteen, and you know looked at how gangly she was and how much she looked to me to you know help her improve, and just the relationship that we built and how. I can pick up the phone and text her right now, hey, congratulations, and it's an immediate response. I think that some of my coaching relationships are the most strongest relationships that I've developed with kids over over the last 20 years, and um, I wouldn't change that for the world. And so, you know, having a full-time job teaching and having a full-time job coaching is is one of those things that's worth it. Yeah. The gym is good medicine.
0: <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely good. All right. Before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me?
1: Oh, questions for you. You know, do you have that reader application in? Because uh, <laughs> that, that's going to be happening soon.
0: I don't. Um, I want to get everyone's permission before I did it first. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I guess I have to go and look. Out there. I have to. Yeah. I have to yeah go. I'm going to hound you. Yeah, I was going to say I, was, I have to like go and look up the link somewhere unless somebody wants to send it to me.
1: Um, I, I might have that on a clipboard that I could send you pretty easily. I think (laughs) I'll do that.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, if you, if you do that, I'll, I'll put it in my show notes and then, uh, and what's the deadline for, for applying?
1: Um, Well, it's a a rolling deadline. Um, but having talked to the chief reader, uh, within the last 24 hours, I know that now is a good time to be, uh, getting that application in. Let's just say she's, she's eligible about checking applications right now so we 110 readers come uh june 11th and so to anybody out there who's listening and hasn't applied
0: uh yeah we'll get on it
1: absolutely
0: yeah um all right yeah if you send me that link i was gonna look it up anyway but i figured you you, could just send it to me and i'll I'll add that in and uh, i'll put it on my weekend to-do list um I'm not going to have to scramble for like a last minute Saturday or Sunday uh, interview to fill my podcast this week. So, um, I had, I had some worries about that early this morning.
1: Um, <laughs> it'll be in box before this podcast is over.
0: All right. Good. All right. So, um, so I guess that's it. That's easy. I just gotta, I, I just have to say not yet, but I, I'm, I guess I, the pressure is now going to be on. And if, uh, if it's not seen, you'll find out if I haven't applied, I guess. Um, uh.
1: Well, I, I do have a few connections that I could ask. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I actually said that to somebody. I was like, I was like, yeah, I'll apply and maybe they'll accept me. You know, if I, if I apply and they're like, they're like, do you, do you not know anybody in there? And I was like, I don't want to assume anything. So I'm going (laughs) to, so maybe I'll be accepted. I'd, so I'm going to leave it at that. Um, but I have, I've cleared my June, uh, or at least that week in June so I can go.
1: That sounds good. The good thing about Nancy is that she's really diligent, and if she needs to, if she needs to say to somebody you haven't met the criteria, she's great about emailing people and saying, "Hey, this is where where we need something else." And mm-hmm. so, um, I think as a chief reader, she's really thorough, and so I'm sure it will either be accepted or she will be chatting with you.
0: Oh, that's great. It's good good to get that feedback either way. So,
1: right? Yep, she's super.
0: All right. So that brings us to picks of the episode. So Jen, do you have any uh, picks of the episode or picks of, you know, recent stories that have grabbed your attention um, that are worth sharing?
1: I think one, but I'm going to be really geeky when I say it. Good. Um, (laughs) I went back and forth between thinking about whether I was going to choose something related to biology content or whether I was going to do something related to pedagogy. And I settled on pedagogy because I think that right now, like that's, that's really who I am. And so um, there is a great paper in CBE life sciences education by a woman that I was lucky enough to meet at the Gordon conference um, this summer. And uh, her name is Stephanie Gardner and it's entitled reflecting on graphs, attributes of graph choice and construction practices in biology. And we had one of those impromptu wonderful conversations with a whole lot of academic discourse about how kids um, select the type of graph they're going to make. And because graphs are ubiquitous in the biological sciences that we really have to teach kids um, what it's like to construct graphs and how how to analyze graphs. And um, it was just one of those conversations that really grabbed me, that it was something long ago in my career I would have taken for granted, that kids can just make a graph, kids can analyze a graph, all graphs are the same. And, you know, 22 years in, I know that none of that is true and that I was utterly naive when I thought that. And so... It just one that came out with, um, one of her PhD students. And I think it really does a super job of cluing us in t- as teachers as to, you know, how kids think about graphs.
0: Yeah. You, yeah you hit a, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't think about the, the graphs. Um, so I'm now like, I'm now scrolling. What was the last name? It was, uh, Gardner.
1: Stephanie Gardner, uh, reflecting on graphs. Um, And I think that she just does a super job of getting some data out there and and trying to identify what some of those misconceptions are from students about graphing and um, speaks to some of the work that I'm doing uh, with the Intro Bio Task Force, thinking about learning progressions in science practices. And we know that there are certain things kids need to do with a graph before they can do other things. And so, how do we as teachers, you know, intentionally? Uh, teach graph construction to our kids and and how does that put them out into the world you know with the ability to to call bs on a graph that they see on usa today or you know on, on any news outlet and say wait no that actually is, is not right and you're making it seem I mean, something really isn't and that's really the kid that i want out there i want the kid to be able to to call bs when they see when they see data being manipulated in you know an incorrect way
0: Yeah, and um, it's it's something that you know it's when I see a student uh, make a graph that doesn't make any sense, it. I would say, you know, 10 years ago, I would have looked at it and I probably would have said, what's wrong with the kid? Why are they making the graph wrong? And now I think when I see a kid who does a graph wrong, I'm like, "Oh God, why am I doing this wrong? Why am I not teaching this right? Like, how do they still not know how to do a graph? Um, I think that's sort of one of those maturation points of uh, of teaching that you get to that point where I think early on, just sort of you said, it would have gone by the wayside. I think early on, I would have attributed any of those graphical errors on the kid um and now i totally i totally hang that on me um
1: right yeah because we we have to give kids those practice opportunities we have to give them ample practice and it needs to be really scaffolded in the sense that we're not asking them to do something well before um you know we've given them those opportunities so yeah i think there's certain things that certainly students are accountable for but i read this paper and i think whoa there's some some things that we as a collective group need to do differently to put kids in a, in a better position to be successful. So, so what's your pick,
0: Aaron? Okay. So my pick, um, so mine is like a totally different direction. I had, um, I had been looking at, um, I, a, a headline that caught my eye, um, earlier this week and it was a very clickbaity headline about, uh, coffee. Um, and like, you know, Oh, you know, coffee is good for you, or something like that. And I was like, "What is this?" So I actually decided to go and find the journal article that it was based on, which is like this is the total nerd that I am. Um, and so I found that this uh, this BMJ uh, research article, which is called "Coffee Consumption and Health: Umbrella Review of Meta Analysis of Multiple Health Outcomes." And so the headlines that I saw, the Science Daily headlines, is three to four cups of coffee a day linked to longer Life and the Time magazine one was three reasons why coffee is so good for you. But if you actually read the science article, those are <laughs> very clickbaity headlines. And so, um, I don't know, there's something that bounced around in my head about like the kinds of things that my kids ask me about. Oh, did you see this story? Or even my colleagues say that. Oh, did you see the story that such and such is good for you? Or we should be eating this, or there's this magic food, or whatever. And I was like, really, did a scientist come out and say you should be drinking three to four coffee, <laughs> cups of coffee a day? Um, and so I just wanted to read the conclusion. Yeah. The conclusion was coffee consumption seems generally safe within usual levels of intake, with summary estimates indicating largest risk reduction for various health outcomes at three to four cups a day and more likely to benefit health than harm. Robust randomized uh, controlled trials are needed to understand whether the observed associations are causal. (laughs) And then it says, importantly, outside pregnancy, existing uh, evidence suggests that coffee could be tested as an intervention without significant risk for causing harm. Women at increased risk of fracture should possibly be excluded. So this article doesn't say coffee is good for you and you should drink coffee. It says this initial study says that it doesn't appear to show any harm and we need to do more studies. (laughs) Um.
1: But what a great opportunity for us because we click on it because we're interested in it. And then we read it and we think, huh. And we put that filter on and then we go into a primary source paper and we say, wait a second. You know, that's, I, I think that's indicative of where our society is. I think it's indicative of this whole conversation and why we need to put these kids out that, you know, are going to look at things with that critical eye, you know, as biologists. So um, probably, strangely, those two articles are more related than we think, because one of them is looking at how we teach kids to be able to analyze data. And one of them is, is giving them a practical experience example of how they're going to have to analyze data as a consumer. So.
0: Yeah, and I to me like when you talk about graphs, I was thinking well a graph tells a story. Um and you know, sometimes I think particularly now I feel like a headline tells a story and we only rely on a headline. Um and so to ask students when they live in a world where the headline tells the story to look at the graph and pull meaning out of this visual data and then now construct mm-hmm. this thing that tells visual data. It is several steps away from the world they live in, um, and so mm-hmm. to help them develop those skills, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I, I think I could probably come up with several examples of this, um, of the clickbaity type headlines, and then the underlying journal article that actually was about them. Um, I've tried to do similar things in the past, but this one was, this one really struck me as how could there be headlines that say you know, three reasons why coffee is so good for you in Time magazine, when in reality, when you read the underlying article, it is a, it is that tentative, it's a scientific article. It doesn't have those. um, And by the way, when you read the actual Science Daily beyond the headline or the Time magazine, there is some soft language in there. Um, And I know that the writers often don't write the headlines, but that's a problem. Like to me, that's a big issue. Um, and, And helping students develop the a critical eye that when they see a headline like that, their question is about what is the underlying research and what does the underlying research actually say, um, what is the scientific claim and where is the actual scientific claim, and not to be d- persuaded by a headline.
1: I, I used to laugh when I would have conversations with my grandma. She, uh, <laughs> she was one of the first uh, female graduates from uh, Northwestern Medical School. Um, and she would always have these conversations with me and I would say something and she'd say, well, what's your source? (laughs) And I would look at her and I would think, you gotta be kidding me. My grandma is asking me for, you know, my source sitting in her living room, having this conversation. But I think to some extent she was forward thinking and that's where we're at because there's conversations that we have on Facebook with people all the time or in a conversation where we'll just throw something out there people for that at some point we have to say what's your source and, and where did you get that because otherwise all of this clickbait just becomes these little tidbits that are in our brain and we throw them out without re- really thinking about it and think about how many people you know that can that can impact so um our kids are really going to have to learn how to deal with that clickbait and learn how to to really decipher what's true and what's not and that's definitely something that we certainly didn't need to do you know early on in our careers. So um really interesting project for kids to be able to see what they can find to see how many how many articles in a given month in a you know in time or in National Geographic or in Discover or you know in whatever it is, how many of those are truly not indicative of what that primary source research says.
0: Yeah. Well and keep in mind I think I generally think Science Daily is a pretty solid source, but their headline was also Three to four totally. cups of coffee a day linked to a longer life. Um, to me, that's when Science Daily is there. You know, you could really, I, as I said, I think there's probably a, there's a there's an assignment in here. This may be one of those early days of class assignments for next year that I'm I'm starting to put together. Of a you know, what does the science actually say? Um, mm-hmm. Kinda kind of assignment. So it was a. Just sort of one of those things that started kicking around this week when I, because uh, that's one of those things that I do. I, I look for the source um, when I see a headline like that. I yeah, more, I mean, more skeptical. I
1: three to four cups of coffee a day were associated with a longer life because, um, you know, these days I've been having three to four cups of coffee <laughs> a day. So, so um, I, I would want that to be true. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wishful thinking. All right, Jen, thanks. Uh, this was a great conversation, um, uh, and I really enjoy that, and I guess now the pressure is on for me to fill out my application to go and be a reader. Um. <laughs>
1: it's it uh, it, it's definitely on. Um, I think that, um, like I said, for anybody out there who hasn't been a reader, you know, maybe this will be you know, just that kick that it takes to say, yeah, I think I want to be part of that community. I want to be part of that social media. Grade some kids' tests that aren't mine, and do that for my colleagues, um, and also meet some really great people. And mm. um, that's how a lot of my relationships started. You know, NABT is old week, old home week for a lot of us, and a lot of those relationships started at the reading. So I would only hope for you that you could meet a whole lot of new people and, and have that have that too. So
0: yeah, it's a great week. Yeah. And I, I feel like kind of I've done, what I've done for this is it's kind of like when I signed up for it, when you sign up for your first marathon, you sign up for your first marathon and then you tell everyone that you signed up for a marathon and that way you really can't back out. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've been talking about the so read. If, so yeah. so
1: <laughs> if that's how you feel, I, I, will, I will go at this with you. Uh, this week I signed up for the GRE to start my PhD program because... Oh. I need to get Gordon Uno off of my back. He asks me every time I see him when I'm going to start a PhD program. And so I actually paid the $205 and I will take the GRE in January and uh, point the PhD heads my way. But now I've said that out loud too, so I can't back out.
0: Wow. It's recorded. You, you managed to bury it uh, an hour into a podcast that nobody listens to. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's okay.
1: So, and at this point we'll know
0: yeah so like aside from me and knufki i don't know that anybody is going to hear this um
1: <laughs> well I, you and david and gordon uh and that's three and yeah. that's enough
0: me yeah, me and, uh, and knufki by the way are enough uh <laughs> so. All right. So let me give my uh, show credits here. Um, uh, if you want to support uh, this podcast, uh, you there is a Patreon page for the Life of the School podcast at patreon.com slash lots. Um, and Patreons to this podcast get invited into a secret Slack channel uh, where the uh, people who support David Knufke's blog and John Darko's creations um, all meet and occasionally have conversations about science. Um Although you know Knuffey's been totally slacking this week, he thinks just because they have a baby, they right. uh, he can t- yeah. totally disappear from uh, from the slack. So. Uh, <laughs>
1: Totally beautiful and cute would yes. absolutely take priority. I can't understand
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so congratulations to the Kanufkis. Uh They're doing awesome. But yeah, it's a it's a little community. I've got to do a much better po- job posting in there. So I'm definitely going to get in there in the next few weeks. And i got a couple ideas I want to share. And they're a great community to bounce ideas off of. Uh, if you're if you're so inclined, there is a little added benefit there. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by Ex Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, show notes are fi- found at lifeoftheschool.com. Org, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Uh, Jen has a Twitter account, but it is one of the most sporadic Twitter accounts I've ever seen. So um, I'm not <laughs> sure if it's worth posting that in there. So thank you again for joining me, and I'll talk to everybody soon.